0: That we begin. All right. Good morning. This this uh, Shabbos we have the great privilege of learning of reading Parshas Tazria. And I say privilege, though Parshas Tazria is a difficult, difficult Parsha. It's difficult because it's complicated. Its laws its laws are technical and detailed, and its laws seem very unfamiliar to us because we no longer practice the uh, the observance of the laws of Tzaraas. So let's give our overview of the Parsha. Then we'll go back to the very beginning. And review Psukim, we've done it before but we're going to review again and we'll see some new ideas as well. So Parshat Tazria begins with the notion of a woman conceiving and giving birth, the laws of tumavatara, as they relate to a Yuladas, a woman who gives birth. A woman who gives birth has um, certain levels of impurity that last for different periods of time depending on whether she gave birth to a boy or a girl. And uh, then at the conclusion of the observance of these laws of tumba, Tummas yoledes that relate to her having given birth, she then has to bring a series of sacrifices, korbanos, to the Beis HaMikdash. Please God, when the Beis HaMikdash will be rebuilt, the mothers here will have to bring korbanos. You'll have to make up for the korbanos of being a Yoladas. The more kids you have, the more korbanos you have to bring. The bigger the barbecue you get to, uh, you get to enjoy. You know, we had recently, once a month we have a beisden for Geras, uh, a in for conversion here in South Florida we are an auxiliary of the RCA's the Bayes of America uh, has regional but they didn't set up all over the country so we meet once a month so this month we meet wonderful wonderful people so inspiring to meet people who are electively voluntarily choosing this way of life it, with enthusiasm and, and passion and commitment and zeal you can't help but walk away amazingly inspired so we met with some, one such candidate uh, this past meeting but she also happened to mention that she's a vegan She's a vegan. So, you know, to a carnivore like me, that was already a strike, you know. I don't know. <laughs> but she's an amazing person, so of course it's not a strike against her. But, but we couldn't help but ask, when the Mikdash will be rebuilt, will you eat the carbon Pesach? Will you eat the carbon Pesach? Because you know the halacha is that in order to convert, one has to have kabbalas. All mitzvos. You have to have a kabbalah on mitzvos. A person has to accept upon themselves to observe the totality of Jewish law. The laws they know and the laws that they will yet learn. And Allah halach is clear that a person, a candidate who comes and he says, I accept or she says, I accept upon myself mitzvos chutz mi davar echad." However, this one law makes no sense to me. This one law is incompatible with my lifestyle. This one law I'm unable to do. So that such a person is rejected. You're not able to Uh, welcome such a person. So what if someone would say, I can't eat the carbon, I'm a vegan, I'm a vegetarian. I can't eat the carbon Pesach. Is that qualify as chutz davar echad? She didn't answer that. She said, I would, uh, you know, pinch my nose and uh, swallow the carbon Pesach because that's what the halacha says, but it would be miserable for me. That was her answer. (laughs) Rabbi Flug, and we were having a whole discussion whether she would qualify, if someone were a vegan, would they qualify as an ones? Would they qualify as a cholah, legabe that mitzvah? You know, when it comes to sukkah, we have the law of mitzahir, that somebody who is in pain who is in discomfort is exempt from the mitzvah. So, if somebody were a vegan or a vegetarian, would they somehow be exempt from having to uh, from bringing a korban? It might depend on why they're a vegan or vegetarian. Is it a philosophical objection? Is it a moral objection? Is it a health concern? Is it, uh, it might depend on why. But anyway, it was an interesting thing that came up. So, those who are mothers, are Yoledes. This is a our parsha begins with. We're going to go back and look at this more in depth. And from here we go, for the remainder, our parsha. And the next parsha, to the laws of Tazriya, to the laws of <laughs> Tazriya, to the laws of Tzaras. Adam kiyev orbis sarosa esos sapachas, and so on. We spoke about last year, you can listen online, why the Torah here singles out the word Adam. And it's very unusual. Usually we use different words to describe a person or humanity. Ish, all kinds of other words. Gever, we have all kinds of words. Here we use Adam. Same word that we use to introduce korbanos, the very beginning of sefer VaYikra. Adam ki mikem korban Lashem. And there, as we do here, mention that when we have a reference to Adam, when we describe man... Generic man as Adam, one can't help but conclude it's a throwback. It is to be reminiscent of the original Adam, of Adam Arishon in Gan Eden. Somehow this is to remind us of the original purpose of humanity, the original purpose in having been created. And that if one violates their purpose in having been created, namely the power of speech, then it results here in Saras. So the fact that it says, Adam, if a person... And, uh, and uses this choice of Adam, it's a reminder of Adam Harishon, it's a reminder of the power of speech and how the way we use the power of speech defines our humanity. I forgot which president's wife they credit this uh, famous quote to, says that, that great people talk about ideas, average people talk about things, small people talk about people. Great people talk about ideas, average people talk about things, small people talk about people. So what we talk about and how we use our power of speech to a great degree determines whether we are an Adam. Do we fulfill our purpose in having been created? Are we fulfilling that which differentiates us from animals? Animals certainly communicate. You know, they make all kinds of noises, but it's a highly unsophisticated communication. It's a communication that lacks self-awareness. When animals communicate, it's communicating a need at that very moment. It's not communicating any sophisticated idea or dream or aspiration or feeling or reflection of self-awareness. And so what differentiates us from an animal is exactly that power of communication and how we use it determines whether we are an Adam, whether we are fulfilling that which differentiates us from the animal kingdom. I don't know if you saw uh, online, there was an amazing video, there's a Chabad Shliach who has ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Anyone see this? You, you better have a box of tissues nearby when you're watching it. It was making the rounds this week. And uh, an amazing, amazing person, at least the video, depicts always the life of the party, bringing simcha to everyone, singing, dancing, showing up, generous, kind, unbelievable person. And the ALS, Lou Gehrig disease is a horrific, horrific disease that robs a person of their humanity. And now he's relegated to bed, Where the only thing he can move are his eyes. And with the screen, he's able to, by moving his eyes, he's able to type. And every week he types a Dvar Torah blog. Talk about the effort that he puts in, the hours and hours and hours, just to put a, a, a letter into a word, into a sentence, into a paragraph. It's something which is unbelievable. So even there, he's denied this gift of the power of speech that differentiates us, despite being in a bed, unable to move his muscles. This, this horrific disease robbing him of the ability to move his muscles on a trach. All he can do is move his eyes and when his family's in the room a smile comes to his lips. But we should appreciate the gift the gift of the power of speech. What an unbelievable gift that we have. Rabbi Emmanuel Feldman has a uh, book Tales out of Shul. I think it's in his book where he tells the story of one of the hardest questions he ever received of a woman who had a certain type of cancer. She had to have her voice box removed. And she came to Rabbi Feldman and she said, I will get to choose what the last words I will say are. What should they be? Should my last words be I love you to family? Should my last words be um, an apology, regret, remorse, tshuva tashem, ta learning Torah? Should it be offering a tefillah? I will choose my last words that I get to utter before they remove my voice box. What should those last words be? So we, who think that we have an infinite amount of words at our disposal, should be uh, very vigilant and careful and appreciative of the incredible, incredible gift of speech. And think often about this video, this Chabad Shliach, or that woman, and how we use it. And that's the notion of Adam. How we use our power of speech determines our differentiating ourselves from animals and fulfilling our very purpose as being human beings. And the Torah then goes on and tells us the process of, of Tzara's, if a person has on their skin this malady, this disorder we of course know that this is not a dermatological disease, this is not eczema this is uh, a spiritual disease the Ramban proves this the Ramban has a long comment where he shows when, when the Torah now gets up to the halachas of tzaras on clothing, or tzaras on a house the Ramban says, lest you think that tzaras on skin is a dermatological disease obviously it's not because you can have taras that comes up on clothing. taras that comes up on the walls of the house. Clearly this is a mystical, spiritual, metaphysical ailment and not a physical one. You can't take care of it with a little cortisone cream. It's something which comes about through a spiritual malady and it's something which can only be repaired and corrected through spiritual, spiritual repair. So this is not dermatological, this is something which is which is uh, spiritual and is the result. The most famous reason given that we all know is Lashnara. But there are many, many other reasons which are given as well. That One, in the times when Saras happened, one would get the instant feedback. One was immediately accountable for their behavior and lived with the results. And certainly that was a great deterrent not to live that way or not to make those same mistakes again. The Torah here delineates the halachas we've spoken about this in the past as well, that are highly dependent on the Kohen. And it's very interesting that the Mitsura, the tsarua, only has, uh, is affected by that status when the Kohen diagnoses them. Until the Kohen diagnose, diagnoses them, the status does not take, does not take effect. Torah so gives us the laws of Zaras of the head and the face, which are different than the rest of the body, a bald spot, which is surrounded by hair, and uh, what the skin looks like, uh, the front of the baldness in the front of the head, in the back of the head, and the consequence for the Mitzvah is, Badad Yeshev, Michutz Lamachanem on page 616, in Perak Yudgimel, Pasuk Mem Vav. all the time that he has this affliction, he is considered contaminated, Badad Yeshev, Michutz alone he sits, or she sits, outside the camp, is their dwelling place. This law applies equally to men and women. Not all the laws of Taraz do, but living outside the camp does. Badad Yeshev. Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, the great Tzuchas Musar, Rosh Hashiva of the Mir in Yerushalayim. The great Rav Chaim says, what's this idea that the Mitzorah sits outside? Why is the Mitzorah by themselves? Says Rav Chaim you know, the Gemara says that Arba Chashiv Kamesh, there are four individuals who are considered dead even when they are alive. And they include a poor person they include a barren woman. They include a mitzora. What does it mean to be dead even when one is alive? So Rechaim Eshulavet suggests that the common denominator of the three, not to equate them, a person struggling with infertility, we've spoken often about the sensitivity that we have to have, is not something someone has brought upon themselves. God forbid. God forbid. <coughs> so it's not to equate the categories, but Rechaim Eshulavet suggests what it means is that these individuals are living such lonely isolated lives, a person who is poor, who is indigent, who is struggling, who doesn't know where they're going to get the matzah and the four cups of wine from, as we wrote about last week, they feel so alone in the world. A person who doesn't have children, who is desperate for continuity, and desperate to fulfill their maternal instinct, feels so alone in the world. And the mitzora is badad yeshev, they feel alone. Why is it we want the mitzorah to feel alone? So it says, of Chaim Shmulevitz, could you think of a greater Mida kineged midah? What did the Mitsorah do? The Mitsora who spoke the Lashon Hara, what is the result of Lashon Hara? It makes someone else feel isolated. When we speak Lashon Hara, or Lashon Hara is spoken about us, the consequence is that the subject of the Lashon Hara feels so alone. You know, if you ever hear about Lashon Hara being spoken about you, and as a rabbi that's a daily occurrence, then, and I'm not, I'm not complaining about that, it's, you know, one of the... Uh, Goes with the job, it also comes with a lot of wonderful things. But I, I tell you, you struggle with when you hear Lashanara spoke about, it, you start asking yourself, does everyone feel that way? Is everyone saying that? Even the people who are acting as if they're my friends, is that really how everyone feels? Is that really what everyone's saying? How many people were told that? And it's not true, and how can it ever be corrected? And you can't help but feel, as a consequence, depending on the magnitude, the severity of the Lashanara, you feel very alone. So says Rav Chaim what is the Mida keneged midah? Measure for measure, for the Mitzorah. They spoke Lashon Hara. What's the result? Badad Michutz You go in time out. Outside the camp. You have to leave the camp. You can't, you, you're not, you're, you don't have the privilege of entering society, of being integrated into the community. Having the opportunity to be a social person is a honor, is a privilege, is a gift, is a blessing. If you abuse that privilege by using the capacity for speech and the social integration to isolate others, then you get put in time out. Then you are isolated. And that's why the result is, Badad Yeshev, Michutz Machana Moshevo. We then have the affliction of the garments. I told you the Rabban proves from here that this is a spiritual malady, not a physical one. Okay, and the laws of the coin, how the coin interacts here, and so on and so forth. Let's go back to the very beginning of the very beginning. By the way, it's interesting, the, the Rav, I'll just quote the Rav before we go back. He says on this concept of Adam Kieb Baor B'Saro. Again, we love to quote from the Rav Chumash here, from the OU. A number of people came up to me afterwards to ask me about it. It's the New Earth edition, Chumash Misoras HaRav, Chumash with commentary based on the teaching of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. It's put out by OU Press. If you go into any farm store, you look online or you Google it, just Google Rabbi Soloveitchik Chumash and you'll find it easily. So the Rav says, If a man has on the skin of his flesh, in the verse that introduces the topic of sacrifices, we find the phrase, Right? We talk, talked about that in, in, in the beginning of Sefer Vayikra the Adam Kiyakriv Mikam. To be an Adam is to Kiyakriv, is to want to be Karov. To fulfill another, another criteria of fulfilling our purpose in humanity and being created and being differentiated from animals is Kiyakriv, the capacity for sacrifice. Animals don't sacrifice, animals satisfy their urge. Adam Adamites satisfy what they want at that moment. Animals, again, I'm not an expert in the animal kingdom, and I'm sure someone's going to tell me about some exception to the rule of the lion who shares his bowl with the tiger, I don't know. But on the whole, atoms don't, animals don't consider, let me tithe 10% of my dog food for those dogs who are less fortunate. <laughs> right? Animals don't... Uh, that's not how they live. But humanity, we have the capacity, Adam ki mikem. The root of the word kiakriv is karov, is to draw close. To be a human, to be differentiated from an animal, is to crave, is to aspire for closeness to Hashem. And it's achieved through kiyakriv, the capacity for sacrifice, the capacity for submission, the capacity for compromise, which is the cornerstone of any relationship between husband and wife, business partners, parents and children, and also between us and God. The capacity to say, though I crave that, I'm not indulging, because you've asked me not to because somehow my showing discipline and refraining from indulging satisfies your need. But the Rav points out that though in both places we have the term Adam, on our Adam if a man has on the skin of his flesh, and in a Adam kiya mikem. But the main difference, he says, is the worse use of the word mikem. When it comes to the sacrifice, the korban, it says mikem. In contrast, in this verse, when the Jew sins and suffers tsaras, the word mikem, from you, is omitted. And why is that? So says the Rav the following. The inclusion of the word mikem in the context of sacrifices and its absence when discussing tzaraas indicates that when a Jew sins, he does so due to external influences. His true internal and spiritual makeup is inconsistent with sinning. The Rambam uses the concept of mikem to explain the halacha. That in the case of an individual who is obligated to grant his wife a divorce but refuses to do so, Bezdin has the authority to administer lashes until he acquiesces. We don't do this today. We don't want to get arrested, as someone prominently did a couple years ago. How can Bezdin compel someone to divorce his wife if a divorce obtained through coercion is not valid? It's the end of Mesechas Git, and those who learn the Daf, a get mu'usa, a coerced get is invalid. So, why is it that in the olden days, again, not now, but it used to be that they took a man who would torture his wife and not give a get. They would take that man to the back alley and they would say to him, tell us again, are you sure you don't want to give a get? As they hold the Louisville Slugger baseball bat. And if that man says, no, no, I do, I do, I want to give the get. Why isn't that a violation of a coerced get? Which is invalid. So the Rambam says something outstanding. The Rambam says something Remarkable. Ramam explains, says the Rav, that the true inner essence of the Jew wants to comply with the requirements of Baisdin. However, external forces such as the evil inclination suppress his desire to act properly and prevent him from complying. Beisden administers lashes, thereby causing the evil inclination to break its hold on the individual and allow his true self, his Mikem, to comply with the court's order. So in other words, when the Beisden takes the guy out back to the alley and they got the baseball bat and they say, you've been torturing your wife, it's emotional abuse, she is enslaved. She's unable to go on with her life. Tell us again, do you want to give the get? Because otherwise we got the baseball bat. And the guy says, I want to give the get. So the Rambam's Lashon, the Rambam's language is, kofen Oso, Achayomar Rotsa Ani. You force him until he says, I want to. And the commentators point out, when the Rambam says, Rotsa Ani, I want to give it, what Beisden is forcing out of the person is the Pintali Inside every human being is a moral compass. Now there are layers and layers that come upon the moral compass through life. Maybe there was a rabbi in our youth we didn't like, so we hate authority and we're rebellious. Maybe there's a figure of authority who we counted on and relied upon and they failed us miserably. A parent, a teacher, a neighbor. Maybe we had a negative experience with... Whatever the case may be, life piles upon us layers and layers on top of our moral compass. Maybe we struggle with addiction. Maybe we struggle with temptation. Maybe we struggle with desire. But deep inside every Jew, every human, is that innate natural moral compass. What Bezdin are doing in that circumstance is they are bringing out that innate moral compass to the world. They're bringing out that pintaliyid, the inner desire to do the right thing. And that's the mikem. You know, the Rav's giving a new spin on the Adam Kiyakrav mikem. We've explained that Adam Kiyakrav mikem, we explain this in Parshas Vayikra, Na'ev Torah for next year Vayekra already that we've explained in the past the mikem means that it's a meaningless sacrifice unless it comes mikem. it's got to come from you if it's superficial if it's you know something on the surface that's not adam ki yakriv right why does it say mikem? that's the fundamental question it could have said adam ki yakriv korban lashem if a person offers offers a sacrifice to hashem why does it say adam ki yakriv mikem korban if a person sacrifices from themselves a korban where else is it coming from? Adam ki yakriv. So the answer is, the sacrifice has to be mikem. What you're really sacrificing is not the animal you put on the altar. But there has to be some inner concentration, some inner thought, some inner inspiration. It's got to be mikem. It's got to come from your kishkas to be real. And not just lip service, which is later what the Nevi'im bemoan. We read with Eicha. We read with the Haftoros leading up to Eicha. We read all about where the Nevi'im our great prophets tell us, Kadesh doesn't want our lip service, I don't want your lip service. You bring in the sacrifice, but it's empty lip service, you don't really mean it. It's not Adam Ki Mikem. The Beis had gotten to a point where people were coming and delivering empty lip service. And we are not far from that point. The way I know we're not far from that point is, because the Gemara tells us, any generation in which the Beis HaMikdash is not rebuilt, had the Beis HaMikdash been standing, it would have been destroyed. Which means, that we are continuing to fall short and to deliver lip service. We come to shul, we don't bring karbanos anymore. What has taken the place of karbanos? Our tfilos, our prayers. And when we open the Siddur, and we mumble the words, or we fly through them, and we don't take any moment of reflection. We have no intent no gratitude, no praise, no appreciation, then it's empty lip service. It's not mikem. It's adam kiakriv. I made it to shul. I opened the sitter. I'm saying the words, and I don't mean to minimize any of that. It's wonderful, and we should continue to do it. At least we're doing that. But if we want to merit the redemption, then it's got to be to the level of mikem. We have to merit getting to a point where it's once again something that comes from inside us. So what's the Rav saying here? Adam ki akriv mikem karban. The most sincere, genuine karban is coming mikem from inside. That sincerity, that genuine place, that pentaliyid, that same place where the person who doesn't give the get, we encourage them gently to. We bring out that place from inside them. So why here does it lack mikem? It's just adam ki ebe because that's not mikem. If you spoke lashon hara, it was external influence. We have an internal voice, which is innately good, and we have external influence that tempts us and that tries to seduce us. So therefore, when we bring the karbon, it's adam kiakriv mikem. It's the internal voice speaking when we come close karov to Hashem. But if we fail in our humanity, we speak lashon hara, we waste our power of speech that we should recognize as an incredible, incredible gift, then it's not mikem. And the Rav continues, Chaza comment, That as part of the Yom Kippur Temple service, the Kohen would list the various sins committed by the people and figuratively place them on the head of the scapegoat. When the Kohen makes his confession on the goat and requests sin atonement, he uses the phrase, Kaperna. Kaper literally means to wipe away, to wash something clean without leaving a stain or residue. Through use of the word Kaperna, the Kohen asks that God simply wipe away the nation's sins because they're superficial. The sins have not been absorbed into the Jewish essence. The mikem, the essence of a Jew, remains untainted and pure and holy. So that's why it's a beautiful, beautiful idea. Says the Rav, on Yom Kippur, I know we're just approaching Pesach, but on Yom Kippur, the reason the expression, the Kohen achieves, kaperna, wipe it away, purge it. You can wipe it clean, like a server. You can wipe it clean. If you want to erase any any, uh, evidence, any record of it, Wipe it clean. How can you wipe it clean if it's innate, if it's integral, if it's something which is internal? So, this is further evidence that, you know, intrinsically a Jew is holy, is pure. We have layers that come on us from the outside. But when we achieve kapara, what we're doing is wiping the outside clean. So, innately and intuitively, the Jew is pure and holy once again. This idea recurs in the following story, says the Rav, Gemara Nidarim. There was once an incident where one vowed not to marry. His niece, his homely niece. The niece was taken to the house of Rabishmal, who beautified her. Rabishmal asked the one who vowed, Is it indeed from this beautiful woman you see before you that you did vow? He answered, No. And Rabishmal released him from the vow. At that moment Rabishmal cried, The daughters of Israel are indeed beautiful, but poverty has made them look repulsive. Israel performs many transgressions which lower her prestige, but the motivation to sin always stems from the external influence. The daughters of Israel are indeed beautiful. The sin does not enter the personality per se. The sin is a stain that can be washed off. This concept appears yet again in Kinos. A story is told of how Yerami who happened upon a poor disheveled woman. When he asked her identity, she replied, she symbolizes the congregation of Israel. Yerami responded that Knesset Israel is noble, good, holy and beautiful. If the Jews become corrupted, the corruption is never internal. The entire concept of tshuva is built upon the idea that sin is only skin deep. Boor b'sarro and not mikem not embedded into the personality of the sinner. What a beautiful, beautiful insight. For the Jew, it gives us such hope and some optimism in ourselves. Never, ever give up on ourselves. Never, ever believe that whatever mistakes we've made, whatever poor choices we've exhibited, whatever indiscretions we've violated, whatever poor judgment we've shown, never, ever, ever think that we've somehow distorted or abused or changed our internal who we are. The whole, the whole premise of tshuva, the capacity, l'shuv, is to go back and to return, is to wipe clean, is to take off the external stains, and to go back to that pure, pristine state. And that's why the Rav says, here, the laws of tzaras are ba'or b'saro. The laws of tzaras are skin deep. Yes, you made a mistake. Yes, you violated the power of speech. Yes, you spoke hara. Yes, you have to spend some time in, in time out. Mi badad yeshev. However, however, it's only skin deep. It's only beor b'saro. It's skin deep. Who you are on the inside remains that holy and pure. And once you've spent time and time out, come back into the camp, and this time fulfill your purpose. Because it was never mikem. It was never mikem. What's the real mikem? The real you is the adam Kiyakriv. So with tshuva is the process of getting back to the adam Kiyakriv and not and not. Um, Living the baor b'saro, which was only skin deep, which was never who you really, who you really were. Beautiful insight by Rabbi soloveitchik Okay, let's go back to the very beginning of the parsha. Parshiyud Beis Pasuk Aleph, the beginning of Parsha Tazria. This whole idea, by the way, of um, fulfilling our purpose in creation, of differentiating ourselves from the animal kingdom, might just be the theme of the entire parsha because. How do you put together these very disparate themes and ideas? First we have Tumas Uledas, the laws of the woman who is impure because of birth. And we have the laws of Brismila, we're going to see in a moment. On the eighth day, the boy is circumcised, some of the details of those laws. What does one thing have to do with the other? And then we get to the laws of of Metzora. The laws of Yoledes should have been at the end of Metzora, where you have the laws of impurity that result from bodily emissions, so that's where the laws of Yoledas, a woman who gives birth, belongs. What's the sequence here? What's the theme here? What is our Parsha? What unites our Parsha? Of a woman gives birth, Brismila, Yoledas, Tzaras. What does one thing have to do with the other? And maybe the answer is that you know Sefer Vayikra is known by the title of Torah Sa'adam. The laws of man, Torah Sa'adam. These are the laws of what it means to be a person. Which comes from Adam ki akrab bikem, Adam ki eba b'sara. We see that Adam over and over. Torah sa Adam. these are the laws of what it means to be a person. And maybe it's being introduced with Yoledas and Brismila to say, from when you, very much, when you first come into the world, and even before that, from when you're conceived, Isha ki the Yoledas. from our very conception and certainly from our birth, and from the Brismila, life can be in a Tahur way or a Tuma way. Life can be led in a pure or impure way. We are raw potential. And what we do with it is our choice. You know, Tumma is the result of wasted potential. Whenever you see Tumma, you see a lack of potential. So, that's why, you know, a woman with her monthly cycle, which is the body saying, the default of the female body, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, some candidates have, the default of the female body is to conceive. In other words, the uterus, the womb, the lining, the endometrial lining of the womb thickens every month in anticipation of a fertilized egg implanting itself into the endometrial lining. It's when the egg is not fertilized, doesn't implant into the endometrial lining that the lining sheds, and that's what a woman's period is. It's the shedding of the endometrial lining that was anticipating and expecting a, the implantation of a fertilized egg which is extraordinary. It means that the default of a woman's body in her childbearing years, monthly, is to prepare for the conception of another human being. That's not to suggest that we believe that you have to have kids all the time and birth control is never permissible. We do believe birth control is permissible. We have laws of puravu. revu not getting into any of that right now. I'm not making a sweeping statement that we don't believe in it and you have to just keep having children because your body expects it every month. That is not my point. But my point is, the result of Tuma. The idea that a woman who is a nida, a woman who menstruates, has certain laws that apply to her and certain distance between husband and wife, which are two separate things. right? During the time of the Beis HaMikdash, that woman was Tamea. Anything she touched become tamei. She was not allowed to touch certain consecrated foods. Independent or parallel to that are the implications of the laws of nida between a husband and wife, which are given for altogether different reasons. But many... Particularly those who are anti-orthodox or you know, have anger towards Torah like to depict that you see the Torah is misogynistic, it discriminates against women. it calls them dirty, and it calls them impure when they have their period. How disgusting. But it has nothing to do with that at all. It's not misogynistic. What it mean? We have plenty of laws of a Zav, a man who has an unhealthy emission has becomes Tameh. It has nothing to do with uh, gender discrimination. What it has to do with is the loss of potential. When the endometrial lining thickens and expects the implantation of a fertilized egg, and all of that does not occur, instead of the egg, the fallopian tube has, uh, it's come through the fallopian tube, the, uh, the ovary has released the egg, and instead of it being fertilized, for whatever reason, either by choice, or because God chose for it not to be fertilized, and the lining sheds, that was a loss of potential. The greatest source of Tumah, the avia Avosa Tumah, is... The father of fathers of Tumah, the most intense form of Tumah, that is the greatest penetration of contamination, is a corpse, a mace. A corpse is the greatest source of contamination. To be in a room with a corpse, without contact whatsoever, leaves one contaminated. A corpse, a mace, is an avyavosat Tumah. Why? Because that human being, when they were alive... The body was the vehicle for the soul to make choices. There was unbelievable potential to interact in the world, to earn merit, to do good things. The potential is lost. When potential is lost, what results is Tummah. Every time you see Tummah, then try to identify how is that a reflection, an expression of the loss of, the loss of potential. So begin, we begin with the Isha Kisazriya, our parsha, the Torah Sa'adam, the, 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 the point of life, is that first is conception and birth, and then we have um, the Brismila and then we have these laws of tumah v'tara and metzorah, because what it's telling us is that the purpose of life is to fulfill our potential. Don't waste potential. When we waste our potential, we have tumah. That is impurity. We're going to talk about this on Shabbos Agadol, the search for chametz and what chametz represents, and how we're trying to rid ourselves, the search and destroy mission, to absolutely rid ourselves of any, any, Shred of Chametz whatsoever is because we're getting rid of that loss of potential. Chametz represents the Yetzirah, the waste wasted time. We're going to talk about all of these ideas, hopefully a cliched message, but in a new way, and um, uh, leading an essentialist life. And, uh, and that's, that's the purpose of life. Torah, so Adam, is to realize our potential and not to waste it. Okay, let's start. God spoke to Moshe saying, if a woman conceives and gives birth to a male, the does titma. She has tumak, she is impure for seven days, paralleling the laws of Nida, that she would be impure for seven days. Rashi tells us, Isha what is the connection? The theme that bridges the end of last week's parsha with ours—the end of last week's parsha was all about the laws of kashrus. The beginning of our parsha is a woman's Tumas yoledas What's the connection? Says Rashi. Just like when it comes to the Genesis story, the creation story, first God creates the animal world and culminates, creation culminates with man, the most sophisticated, the highest of all. uh, Creation is a developmental, it works in stages, it improves, which is why some like to say, what is the pinnacle of creation? It's not actually man. What happens after man? What What is taken from man's rib? Woman is the pinnacle, some say, but we don't pass him like that. That, so anyway. <laughs> but the last creation is the last creation is a man, humanity. So just like in the Genesis story, the creation story, it goes from animals to humans. So too, in the story of the laws of Tumah, we go from animals. Last week's Pasha, the laws of Kashrus and the and the impurities of animals, of a non-kosher, to now the laws of, of people. The Orachaim is bothered, even before we continue. The Orachayim HaKadosh is bothered. Isha You see the Orachaim? Pasik base. Isha Ki if a woman conceives, Sarah Das, Lamahotrach Lomar, the below his speak Lomar, Isha Te Why do we have to say if a woman conceives and gives birth? If she gave birth, don't we know that she conceived? Why doesn't it say she gave birth? And obviously, if she gave birth, she conceived. It's a good question, right? Some proof from here, by the way. You know, the halacha is, we'll see, you know, let's keep reading for a moment, then we'll come back. Pasal on the eighth day, Yimol Or you circumcise the flesh of his foreskin. yom, and then we have the laws of of uh, Tuma and Tara for her. So, Uva Yamash Mini on the eighth day. So, Isha Zria. if a woman gives birth, V Yelda, if a woman conceives and gives birth, then on the eighth day you circumcise. And we learn from here that Mila is Docha Shabbos. Normally on Shabbos we have 39 categories of creative labor that we must abstain from, but if the Bris, if the eighth day falls on Shabbos or on Yantif, Mila is Docha. Circumcision is doche Shabbos and Yontif. Circumcision supersedes Shabbos and Yontif. Its message, its theme, its impact, its status change is so significant it even supersedes Shabbos and Yontif. How much does it supersede? We have a whole parak in Shabas, Shabbos, de Mila that deals with this question. In the town of Rebblazer, they would even even machshire uh, Mila, even the preparations for Mila would be doche Shabbos. So if you didn't have a knife, you could fashion a knife. And light a fire to heat the water, not only the mila itself, the moment of cutting the flesh, but even the preparation. We don't pask in that way, we don't pask makshire mila. So when we have a mila on Shabbos, we do everything in advance. The mohel leaves his utensils here and everything is set, and the only thing that's actually supersedes Shabbos is the cut, is the bris mila itself. So many poskim see from our parsha, from our pasuk, that Isha Kisazriya vi alda, Gemara says, that Isha Kisazriah V'al Da. When you conceive and vialda, Da. V'al means you give birth. You give birth in a natural way. So only a natural childbirth is Docha Shabbos. But if a woman had a C-section and the baby was Yotzei dofen, the baby came out through the window instead of uh, naturally, Yotzei dofen. So if the baby came out through a C-section, that's not a fulfillment of Isha Kisazriah the That's not a yaldah. That's not a natural childbirth. So someone who has a C-section, the bris of that baby, even on the eighth day, is not docha Shabbos or yontif. So that's the yaldah. What about the isha kisazria? Isha kisazria. This comes to the Orchayim's question: Why did I have to be told Zazriah If she's yaldah, isn't it obvious she's tazria? Now the Orchayim, who lived 150 years ago lived in Morocco, and then in Yerushalayim. So the Yerachayim HaKadosh maybe couldn't appreciate, like we can, why it needs to say Kitazria, Because many posts of our time say, what about if a woman became pregnant through IVF? Would the bris of an IVF baby be Doha Shabbos? A baby boy conceived through IVF, injury of fertilization, would such a baby, in other words, that baby was not conceived in the womb, where was that baby conceived? In a Petri dish. And then implanted into the womb. So the key was not a Ki tazriya. The Petri dish was Tazriyah. Not, well not, the, not the Isha Ki tazriya. So therefore, the overwhelming majority of poskim say that if a woman conceives through IVF, and that baby boy is born, and the eighth day is Shabbos, the bris is not on Shabbos. The bris is not Docha Shabbos. Ravasha Weiss, who was our guest earlier this year, the Minchas Asher, the posek of Shahid Tzedek Hospital, I got a halacha journal in the mail. Two or three months ago, he had an article in that journal, and he disagrees. He says that a woman conceives through IVF, the bris is still docha Shabbos. But he's a das yachid, he has a singular opinion, the minchas asher. the majority hold... Fulfillment of Ki Tazriya has to be. The Isha is Tazriyah. The woman is conceiving internally, and not that this baby, this embryo, was conceived in a petri dish, and later placed inside her. But the Or nevertheless is bothered. Why do I have to be told Tazriya? If she's Violda, isn't it obvious she is tazria? Which we're saying, no, it's not necessarily obvious she was Tazriya. But what does he say? But Rabbi, say it's to exclude C-section, Ki how do they learn that? Because the laid has to be Bamakumazriya. Isha kitazria, Vialdah. The Vialda, the childbirth has to be in the place of kitazria, namely it has to be natural. Ribshimanomal the Rabbas. and there's a long, long comment here of the Orachaim. Um, but I want to skip to where he says. Here. Um here. The paragraph Vahum Maimara Kosov. Kitazriya Vialda. you have Mikro's Kedolos. The paragraph that begins, Vuhum Maara Kitazriya Vialda. Modiya Akasuv. Right, so the Ar-Khaim's answering. Why does it have to tell me kitazriya Once she's vi'alda don't I know Kitazriya? So Chazal already taught us to tell us Yotze Dophans not Shabbos I'm suggesting Kitazriya because the Allah of IV, the IVF says the Aurachaim, another reason. The the main vialda, the, the main work of bringing that child into the world, happened at the moment of conception. True development happens during the gestational period. The baby will form its limbs. The baby will form its organs. The baby will form its brain. The baby will form its its faculties. True, all of that happens during the gestational period but the potential who that baby will be a boy or a girl athletic, artistic, smart and so on and so forth is all in the DNA when the sperm and the ovum combined when the blastocyst and the embryo are formed that's when that child is determined so the late that happens Kitazria says the Orachaim. lest you think life begins when the child emerges it's at the moment that the child is formed the moment that the child is formed That's when the potential is implanted. The DNA, physically and spiritually, is put into that child from the moment that they are conceived. And you can't change it once it's already been formed. Right? Like the Gemara Nida says, you can daven for the gender of the baby until 40 days. After 40 days, the gender's been determined. You can't daven anymore. Now, you'll argue scientifically today, the gender's been determined even before 40 days. But there is evidence. The other way, but leave that all aside, we actually, you can listen online on Y.U. Torah, we once gave a shear on gender selection in halacha. Whether one is, it was a more uncomfortable shear then than if I were to give it now, but um, at the time I only had girls. But the uh, gender selection in halacha: are you allowed to manipulate to try to get the gender that you want? Through natural remedies, through other manipulation techniques, or most expensively, through something called PGD, Pre-Implantation Genetic Diagnosis. Are you allowed to do IVF in order to get the gender that you want? And if you can, how far can you go? Can you get out, do IVF to get the child with the hair color that you want, and the eyes color that you want, and the IQ that you want? And you want your son to be tall, to be on the basketball team. and You want your daughter to be uh, good at drama, so she'll make it in the play. How far can you go with this manipulation? We gave that share. You can find it on Y-Torah. But says the Orachaim correctly, that the, the DNA, the potential of this child in many of these ways, is determined at the moment of conception. So we have two Leda's. there are two births of a child. There's one they emerge into the world, and that happens in the hospital under the bright lights. But when does that neshama emerge down into this world? That happens when the neshama is placed in the body. We gave a talk as part of our... um, What's the series we're doing right now called? On Wednesdays? With Rachel Berman. The journey the, final journey? the final journey. thank you. So as part of the final journey series, we gave a talk on the soul and afterlife and so on. And we talked about how what we believe is all souls, the Gemara says, Chazal teaches, that all souls came to be at the moment of the creation of the world. God keeps them in the celestial storehouse in a file cabinet. When a man and a woman in a loving embrace in the appropriate context, hopefully, are intimate, and a sperm and an ovum combine and God determines it's appropriate, he goes to his cabin cabinet, he finds the right neshama and he places it into that, into that guf. And it lives with that guf for 70, 80, 120 years and then it's removed to what we call yitziyah sa neshama, the extraction of the soul from the body. We don't believe in death. People don't die, bodies die. People aren't buried, bodies are buried. The neshama lives forever, it's immortal. It exists at the beginning of time, since the beginning of creation and it will live Eternally. It is only combined and housed with the body for a short period of time. And there's all kinds of consequences we're not going to get into. This has to do with last week's Pasha, when Moshe tells Aaron, You lost your two sons, don't tear Kriya. But normally an Avel does tear Kriya. Normally the Avel does tear their garment. I mentioned that a Shiva home the other night, a beautiful interpretation I saw on Kriya. Why do we tear the garment? So I used to explain, used to think, We tear Kriya, we tear the garment. Why? It's an expression of grief. Of, of, of pain of loss to tear the garment the material is unimportant in the loss of something spiritual but it's even more than that it's an affirmation of our belief that just as I'm tearing a garment which doesn't define me it's external to me the garment is outside of me so to the body is the garment of the soul the soul wears the body just like we wear a garment just like the body wears a garment. So we tear the garment to show that the body is torn, but the body is only the garment of the soul. A very beautiful interpretation. So here says the Archaim, there are two births. There's the birth of the body into the world, that happens at the moment of childbirth. But the birth of the soul into the world happens at the moment of conception. We believe, I'm not going to get into the consequences of abortion, though we gave a talk on that too, you could find on Y.U. Torah. Forty years after Roe versus Wade, reflections on abortion. It's also there, but uh, we believe that the soul is born into the world at the moment of conception, and that's why it says "isha kitazria vialda." Because the vialda is not nine months later; the vialda is kitazria. You're bringing the soul into this world, kitazria vialda. The Vialda is at the moment of Tazria, not nine months later, when the body leaves and comes into this, into this world. And with this we can understand. And now the Archaim, who was a Kabbalist, it's a very mystical idea. He says when the Torah describes that of Avram and Sarah created the nefesh Asub Haran, the souls they created. Normally, we understand that to mean their outreach efforts. They transformed people in charan. Avram megayir asah and Sarah Avram converted the men, Sarah converted the women. They transformed the world with their radical new way of thinking about of thinking about the world. But here the Arachayim is saying that's not what it means. Hanefashashir Bukharan does not mean the outrage they did. It means that we know Sarah was barren for so many years. But all those years of trying, all those years of trying, and I guess the Arachayim is assuming she had miscarriages, but all those years of miscarriages, that union indeed brought a neshama down to that miscarriage. And that neshama had a birth, even if the baby didn't have a healthy birth into the world the neshama had a birth nevertheless down into this earth and this is in fact what we paskin halacha l'maysa. because when a person has a stillbirth if they have a stillbirth boy to Rama Ramah and we give that boy a bris even a stillborn boy we give the boy a bris and a stillborn boy or girl we give them a name what are we giving a name? they never experienced Vialda they were never born they never lived even for a moment it's not that they tragically lived only for hours or days. They didn't live even for a moment. They were stillborn. Why do we give a name? Why do we do a bris? The Ramadan and the notes of came, the commentaries explain because in Tchia Samesim, that little baby will come back. And when they do, if it's a boy, they'll need a bris. And for us to identify with them, that Neshama deserves a name. A name is an identity, a name is a status, a name is a description. They deserve a name, so Kitazria Vialda says the Yerachayim. The Vialda is not nine months later. The Vialda is Kitazria. When you conceive, you brought an neshama down, and to a certain extent, I don't know this, whether this is comforting or not. My wife and I went through a stillbirth a number of years ago, and people tried to comfort us with this. So I don't I'm not suggesting it's comforting for everybody, but some suggest that the stillborn or even miscarried souls are the holiest because they never had a blemish. They were a soul that came down to this world and for whatever reason God called them back, but called them back in a pure, pristine state before they could have made one poor choice, before they made one mistake, before they erred in any way. They were as pure and pristine as they could be. So one should not feel that if they had a stillbirth or a miscarriage, well, what was the point of it all? What was the point of the pain and discomfort? What was it all for if there's not even a healthy child resulting? Certainly we long for the healthy child to result... But even short of that, to know that there was a leda even just with the zria, there was a birth, even just with the conception, it was the birth of that neshama who will now have a name, a neshama, a boy who now has a bris, who in tchias will be reunited with their family. There was a birth, even if we're not experiencing it in its fullest sense. Now we will experience it one day. And he goes on with more of these mystical thoughts. Okay. It's a long, long orachayim. It's all beautiful along these same lines. Ugh, oh, I had so much to talk about. We didn't even get past the second Ashmini. Let me tell you one more thing from the Rav. Because uh, you know I love this Rav Chumash. On the eighth day, Yemol Besor Orla So The boy gets his bris on the 8th day. Says Rabbi Salavechik in his chumash. Well, by the way, you don't have to buy the chumash because I'll just read the best ones to you every week. (laughs) Now, support the OU. Buy the chumash. There are two fulfillments in the mitzvah of Milah. A great insight. At your grandchild, Mir Tashem, you should be zochah for more grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And if you're invited to speak at the bris, then here you have a Tvar Torah right now. Two fulfillments in the mitzvah of Milah. On the one hand... The act of circumcision is conceptually similar to many other mitzvahs. There's a mitzvah to circumcise one's son, just as there's a mitzvah to hold a lulav. On the other hand, a new status is conferred upon the person through milah. One who takes a lulav is the same person before and after the mitzvah. The status has not changed. But after milah, the child becomes a ben bris. Though only then can he enter the mikdash or bring sacrifices. Milah is an integral part of conversion as well. After conversion, the individual has fundamentally changed. Right? We know that in RL, somebody who doesn't have a mila can't bring a carbon Pesach. They can't enter the Beis HaMikdash. So a bris milah is categorically different than other mitzvahs. When I hear, when I hear the shofar, or I shake the lulav, or I light the Shabbos candles, I'm the same person before and after the mitzvah. I just did an act of the mitzvah. But bris is not just an act. On the one hand, it's an act. But it's an act that changes the very essence and status of the person upon whom the act was done. These two aspects of the mitzvah, here's the Dvar Torah for you, are reflected in the two brachas that we say at a bris. The first bracha, Shikrishan mitosavitzivanu alamilah. That's a classic on mitzvah. Al lulav, Lulah, Lahatikner Shahaka, Lishmo Ko Shofar. We make a bracha before we do a mitzvah. Al mila is the classic bracha before you do the act of the mitzvah. According to Rabbeinu Tam, the second bracha refers to the change of status resulting from the act of mila. What's the second bracha? Lachniso the brisso, shall brisso, shall avram avinu. The mole makes the first bracha. The father makes the second bracha. The mole is doing the act. You make a birchas mitzvah. The father is responsible for that change of status, that the child is now a ben bris. The child is now transformed and is different. The evil Roman governor, Turnus Rufus, once asked Rabbi Akiva if God hated the uncircumcised, why does he create man in an uncircumcised state? In other words, if God wants us to have a bris, why didn't He just create us without a foreskin? And Rabbi Akiva answered, Does the earth yield bread? What a great answer. Does bread grow from the ground? In his rhetorical response, Rabbi Akiva conveyed that just as God desires that man bring forth bread through his effort, it is only man who can sanctify himself. If man wants to attain holiness, the initiative rests with him. He must circumcise himself. Pusik says in "But B'dama Yechayi, only through the blood of his personal sacrifice shall man live on a holy plane. Without toil and suffering, there is no holiness. Without toil and suffering, there is no holiness. The role of man in the endowment of holiness is a central theme in halacha. For example, if a scribe writes a Torah scroll and does not explicitly note the sanctity of the tetragrammaton, Hashem's name, Yud Vavke, Vav while writing the name, neither the name nor the scroll of any sanctity The loftiness of the text itself makes no difference. Without the intention of writing the name for the purpose of vesting holiness in the scroll, even the ultimate expression of faith itself, the Shema becomes profane. A Torah scroll is invested with holiness by man. A sacrifice is consecrated through man's designation. It is Knessus Israel who sanctifies the festivals through the establishment of the new month. Whether sanctity is vested in the physical matter or in time, we find few instances where man is not the active participant and the establishment of holiness. So says the Rav, what was Rabbi Akiva answering to Rufus. If God wants you circumcised, why didn't He just make you that way? Rabbi Akiva said, does bread grow from the ground? Meaning, we are partners with God in creation. We need to do our part. And that holiness only results, not from what God does, but from what we do. The Rav said, it's not in this chumash here, the Rav said elsewhere, which is the holier mountain? Har Sinai? Or Har Hamoria, Which is the mountain that we visit, that we have great reverence? Unfortunately, I not on top of. But is it the temple Mount, Or is it Har Sinai? Har Sinai. How many here have been to Har Sinai? We don't even know. What's, we know where it is. We know. Har Sinai is not exactly a Jewish tourist destination. The Kotel? Who here has been to the Kotel? Everybody's been to the Kotel. We should, we're really the Kotel, is because we're at Har Hamoria. Why is that? Because Har Sinai... That doesn't have holiness anymore. It has no sanctity. Why? Because yeah. that was God giving us the Torah. We were passive. Whereas at Hara Amoryah, we bring korbanos. Holiness results in man's sacrifices. And I'm surprised I didn't include that here in this section because that's the ultimate insight of the rub. Holiness is the result of our sacrifice. And I leave you with a thought, getting you ready for Pesach. Which is why? Which is why? Why didn't God just take us out of Egypt? He knew which homes were Jewish homes. Why did we have to go through this great courageous act of, of setting aside one of the Egyptian gods for f- numerous days and then slaughtering it in front of the Egyptians, risking our lives, and then smearing its blood on our doorposts, rubbing it in the Egyptians' faces? God didn't know which were our houses so he could pass over. So, what do you see? Elamai, why? Because if you want redemption, you can't be a passive spectator, you have to be an active participant. Rabbi and I want her to explain, that's why we get up to open the door for Elio Anavi. Kos Elio. can he come down the chimney? can he come through the window? Why do you have to get up and open the door? Elio Anavi? So Rabbi Riskin said, if you want redemption, you can't sit in your seat. You can't lay on your couch. You got to get up off the chair and you got to do something. So the B'dama Chayi, Dam Mila and Dam Pesach, the common denominator of both, is that, God invites us to be His partner. Holiness and redemption result when man is involved, when we do our part, not when we sit and wait to be passive spectators. Have a wonderful day, a great week. Next week will be our last week before... And don't forget, you can listen online if you're leaving for Pesach, whyutorah.org.